Well, friends, I'd like to draw your attention this morning to... Scott, you're here. I prayed that God would, would bring you here. I didn't see that you were here. So praise God. He answered my prayer quickly. Didn't he? Um, it's good to see you, brother. Um, uh, anyway, we're looking at Isaiah chapter 45, verses 14 to 19. That's our text this morning. Isaiah 45, verses 14 to 19. And if you want to use one of the Bibles that we provide in the seat in front of you, you'll find it either on page 567 or page 606. We have a couple of different editions going there, but that's where you'll find our text, Isaiah 45, verses 14 to 19. And I'm going to read our text and then ask for God's blessing on our time and go from there. Thus says the Lord, the wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabaeans, men of stature, shall come over to you and be yours. They shall follow you. They shall come over in chains and bow down to you. They will plead with you, saying, Surely God is in you, and there is no other, no God besides him. Truly you are a God who hides himself, O God of Israel, the Savior. All of them are put to shame and confounded. The makers of idols go in confusion together. But Israel is saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation. You shall not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity. For thus says the Lord, who created the heavens, he is God. Who formed the earth and made it, he established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I did not speak in secret in a land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. Let's pray. God, we gladly acknowledge that you speak the truth and you declare what is right, and you've done so on the pages of your written word. And so it's with confidence and great expectancy that we open up these words and we want to hear from you. We plead with you that your spirit would take up his sword and do the work that needs to happen in our lives. We know it's life-giving work, whether to cleanse, whether to comfort, whether to inform, whether to convert, whether to equip us for trials to come we don't even know about. Whatever sanctifying and saving purposes you have for us in your word, we invite you and plead with you to work powerfully in our lives. Give us alert minds and soft hearts to hear from you. I pray for myself that you would fill me with your spirit and grant me faithful and wise and loving proclamation of what you have to say to us and that we would all have ears to hear. Be glorified in our midst in our response of faith and obedience and save any in our midst who don't yet know the saving love of Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Over the millennia and down to our time, mankind has proven tireless in generating ideas about who God is, how he can be known, and how to worship him or them. And amid such a diversity of approaches and such confusion, some have given up altogether the idea of belief in God. 
or the hope of possibly finding him. But even then, man still has eternal things stamped onto our nature indelibly. And so even the confession of atheism doesn't end our quest for ultimate meaning. Uh, It doesn't end our quest for a moral code that can guide us and tell us what's right. It doesn't end our desire for some kind of clarity amid the apparent chaos of life and some kind of freedom from things like guilt and shame. Nobody is free from these questions. Now, as Christians, we may think of ourselves as immune to this kind of confusion. And we should be, but in practice, we find ourselves doing some searching of our own. How should I understand God? How can I sift through all of the claims and different representations about him that I hear, or even the assumptions that I myself make about him? How can I have clarity about who God really is? Or to put a finer point on it, when I'm struggling, when I'm suffering and trying to make sense of life, where is God then? When the darkness overwhelms and the things that are happening seem inexplicable, how can I believe that he's in control and that he's good? In short, whatever our spiritual state, we are a God-seeking people. We are a people who cannot escape ultimate questions. So where do we find God? Where do we see God? Today we continue our journey in the prophet Isaiah's message to a discouraged people, Judah. Uh, They have heard a prophecy of their defeat and exile that's coming in the future because of their persistent sin. But in the wake of that difficult word, the Lord has much more to say to them and thankfully to us about his saving purposes that transcend this one historical event of the exile. What he has to say to them goes far beyond this historical event. And here's the message of our text this morning in short. Here's what God has to say to us. Sinners see the hidden God only in the saving word of Christ. Sinners see the hidden God only in the saving word of Christ. Now over the last two weeks, we heard the Lord predicting that he would use a future Gentile king, still many generations yet to come, the Persian King Cyrus. He would use this man to rescue and return his exiled people. And this raised concerns among his people about the way that God governs the world. That's what we looked at last week. And the answer we saw in verses 9 to 13 is that God is free to do what he wants with his world and that what he wants to do for his people is good and righteous. But this week, he he lifts up the heads of his beleaguered people by reminding them, and of course us, this is for us, of how exactly he's chosen to reveal himself. How we know, how can we see God in the apparent chaos of this world? Now, we'll walk through our text and see three different portraits orbiting around this common theme of the hidden God showing himself to us through salvation in Christ. So three portraits that kind of show this picture together. And to explore them, we'll raise and answer three questions. So here's our first question. This will take us to verses 14 and 15. How is God hidden? How is God hidden? Verses 14 and 15. I'll read them again. Thus says the Lord, the wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabaeans men of stature shall come over to you and be yours. They shall follow you. 
It shall come over in chains and bow down to you. They will plead with you, saying, Surely God is in you, and there is no other, no God besides him. Truly you are a God who hides himself, O God of Israel, the Savior. So our first portrait shows us people from three faraway nations. These are contemporaries of Israel in Isaiah's time. What are these nations doing? These Egyptians and Cushites and Sabaeans. They're coming to Israel in submission, like vanquished opponents, chained and bowing and pleading. That's the image here. Now these three seem to stand for all the nations of the world, representing all of their diversity, their wide geographic range. You probably know where Egypt is. It's in northern Africa. Cush is a little bit south of there, probably in modern-day Sudan. And the Sabaeans, we're not totally sure, but they probably live somewhere in Arabia. So these are nations from a wide geographic range, and they seem to be powerful and wealthy. They don't just come. They bring their wealth, their merchandise. They're men of stature. They have a lot to bring. And in this portrait here, they are conquered and submitting to Israel. But at the end of verse 14, their confession shows us that this conquest imagery is more metaphorical. Because what? They're subject from the heart to Israel's God. They have not been conquered militarily. They have not been beaten on the field of battle. Rather, the one true God, the God of Israel, has won over their hearts. They're coming and saying, we get it. We know who the one God is. Israel, it's your God. So, it's in coming to the Lord as the one God that they also come to Israel, the people of God. And they're joining Israel and they're following them and saying, we're yours. We're with you because we're coming to own your God as our God. And where is this being fulfilled? But in the spread of the gospel among the nations. Think of Acts 2, the day of Pentecost, when the risen Christ pours out his Holy Spirit on the church in Jerusalem. And during that event, we read about a diverse crowd of God worshipers from all the nations who have come to Jerusalem for the festival. And it's from that crowd that the Lord converts thousands to faith in Christ and establishes his church in Jerusalem. Later on, a few chapters on in Acts chapter 8, we read about a eunuch from the royal court of Ethiopia, maybe pretty close to Cush here, this nation that's listed here. He's come to Jerusalem to worship Israel's God. And on his travel, he encounters the evangelist Philip while reading the book of Isaiah, our book of Isaiah. He's reading a prophecy about Christ from Isaiah 53. And soon enough, he hears the gospel of Jesus from Philip and he believes. So from the day of Pentecost on to now, the church is the place where all the nations of the world have come and are coming to Israel's Messiah in faith. All over the world from various ethnic groups and languages, we have heard Israel's scriptures. We've learned that Israel's God is the one true God. And we've been grafted into the living olive tree by faith. But then the newly converted Gentiles say in verse 15 a curious thing. Now the ESV punctuates verse 15 as though it's beginning, it's, it's, it's ended what the Gentiles say at the end of verse 14. It's beginning the prophet's speech, which is possible. It's difficult to say exactly. But putting verse 15 in the mouth of the nations seems to make more sense, give us a smoother reading. So what do they say in verse 15? They confess to God, you are a God who hides himself. These are people who didn't used to know the Lord. And what is the key that unlocked their access to him? It's the second half of verse 15. Oh, God of Israel, the Savior. 
that brief line, on the one hand, it shows universality. On the other hand, it shows exclusivity. Oh, God of Israel, the Savior. The universality is he's called the Savior by these diverse Gentile nations. You're it. You're the Savior for everyone. But the exclusivity is he's called the God of Israel. It is one particular God who is the Savior for all. So salvation is available for everyone in this one God who has made himself known and his salvation known through this one particular people. It's like they're saying, God, you were hidden and formerly we could not find you in our pagan beliefs, often our far-flung lands, but now we've found you. We've drawn near to the God of Israel for salvation. Friends, imagine that you're in a submarine beneath the surface of the ocean and you want to look up and see what's on the surface. And what do you do? Do you just tilt your head up and look up? You can try that. In fact, you can go anywhere in the submarine you want and try that. Just look up. And what will happen? No matter where you go, it still won't work. Uh, all you'll see is the top of whatever room you're in, in the submarine, right? You'll see different things. Like there's a diversity of what you'll see. You'll look up and see different interesting uh, things above you. But you will never see the surface that way. Where do you go to see the surface? There's one very particular place to look into to see the surface. And that's called the periscope. There's an instrument that you can use to look up and see the surface. But you have to look into the periscope. You can't go anywhere else you want and look up. It won't help you. And that's what it's like. The, the pagan nations looking around. Everyone, it's like all the nations of the world that have their necks craned upward. And they're looking up and they're asking these ultimate questions about God and about reality. But it's to no avail. Just like you're somewhere in a submarine randomly looking up. It, you cannot see that way. Where can you see God? The one place where he has punched a hole in the curtain that separates heaven from earth. In the Old Covenant terms, it's the nation Israel to whom he's given his law and his prophets and whom he's had to build a temple for him to inhabit with his glory. That's where you see God. God is denying that everyone in every place has equal access to knowledge of him. And we know that all different cultures and religions and philosophies have offered their answers about these ultimate questions. And they're all ultimately wrong, except one. God can't be known apart from his saving relationship in history with his people Israel. It's by joining them and hearing the words that he's spoken to them and believing in the Christ that he has sent according to his promises to them. That's the key to unlocking the knowledge of God. And look at us now, church. What are we doing? We are reading these ancient scriptures written 2,700 years ago in Hebrew. And we're owning them as Christian scriptures across the world and across time. The Lord has grafted us into the living root of his believing people. But here we see in this picture both on, on the one hand a warning for Jews and a warning for Gentiles, which means non-Jews. For us Gentiles, which I presume is most of us, this humbles us because we rely on Israel's Messiah for salvation. We rely on Israel's scriptures for the true knowledge of God. We are the Johnny-come-lately transplants into the people of God. And in Romans 11, verses 17 to 24, the Apostle Paul warns Gentile believers against the kind of arrogance that forgets how we have been grafted into this 
olive tree of God's people. And sadly, sometimes in history, Christians have lost sight of this and have taken on an ugly anti-Semitic attitude as though we were superior to the Jews because we were wise enough to find Christ that they largely rejected. But these words in verses 14 and 15 offer a stinging rebuke to any such thinking. So it is humbling to Gentiles. On the other hand, it's a warning to Israel at the same time. And we see throughout the Bible that they are prone to an entitled attitude that says that God's words and his salvation and the knowledge of him, these are our exclusive property. And that the Gentiles are are unclean, they're on the outs, and they don't matter as far as God and his salvation are concerned. And so just as the Lord rebukes arrogant Gentiles who don't recognize our debt to the Jews, so he rebukes arrogant Jews who think that his salvation is provincial. It's for them alone. But looking beyond this Jew-Gentile issue, look at today, look at our pluralistic age. There are countless religions and philosophies and systems of thought that are casting their eyes upward and offering answers to ultimate questions. Like I said, questions about where we came from, where we're going, where, where ultimate meaning is found, where are we freed from guilt and shame, things like that. And they're not doing any better than we would do if we were to look up in a submarine. Now, some of you astute theologians might be wondering, what about natural revelation? What about natural revelation? Doesn't the Bible teach that the heavens declare the glory of God? We read about this in Psalm 19. Doesn't the Bible teach that God made himself visible in creation to be seen and known by all, just as Paul writes about in Romans chapter 1? Well, yes, you're right. God has made himself evident and plain in all creation. But unfortunately, sin has distorted our ability to see that. Sin has distorted our ability to interpret the way he has broadcast his glory in the heavens. It's blinded us from coming to right conclusions about God based on his creation. So the hiddenness of God is not God's fault. It's ours. It's our fault. God has put his identifying stamp on creation out there and even in our own souls in the way he's made us. But we've turned aside. And again, in terms of Romans 1, we have suppressed this truth by the unrighteousness of our hearts. Paul explains in verse 21 of that chapter about the world, mankind. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. So we have rejected the knowledge of God in creation and turned away into folly and darkness. So this is the first question. How is God hidden? The answer is he's hidden to all the people of the world because of our sin. He's hidden to all the people of the world because of our sin. The second question then is how does God save? How does God save? And that we find in verses 16 and 17. He writes, all of them are put to shame and confounded. The makers of idols go in confusion together. But Israel is saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation. You shall not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity. We've just heard about how the nations come to the Lord and join Israel in verse 14. They found the hidden God. And for the second portrait, we see in these two verses a contrast between the fates of two groups of people. 
Verse 16 is about the idol makers and idol worshipers. That is the Gentiles, the nations who don't know the God of Israel. And then verse 17 shows us the opposite group, Israel. However, because of what we just read out of verse 14, we should broaden this to understand Israel and all others who know Israel's God. So this is the people who know the Lord and the people who don't. What are the fates of these two groups of people? In verse 16, for the idolaters, it's shame and humiliation and ruin. But for God's people, it's eternal salvation. And what's implied there is glory. They'll never be put to shame. They have eternal glory. But we know that this isn't always how it looks in this life. If you'll recall the literary context of Isaiah, God has promised Israel an appointed conquest and exile for them at the hands of evil pagans, evil idol worshipers, the Babylonians. And if that were not enough, after that he told them, well, the way I'm going to rescue from that will be exile and deliverance through another group of pagan Gentiles, another group of idolaters, the Persians under Cyrus. So Israel is feeling pretty low after these predictions. They're feeling shamed and humiliated. And we we saw last week in verses 9 to 13 addressing the struggle to believe that these unusual and embarrassing events that he's appointed for them are actually for their good. So here in these two verses, the Lord is promising a future reversal. A future reversal. During this life, the idolaters who don't know the Lord often appear to be the prosperous and exalted ones. They often appear to be the ones that we would want to envy. And Psalm 37 verse 7 echoes this concern. A lot of this comes up in a lot of places in Psalm 37 and Psalm 73, by the way, if you want to read about that. But Psalm 37 7, Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in His way, over the man who carries out evil desires. We who know the Lord can take heart because he promises a future reversal and salvation. We might seem like lowly losers in this life. But no matter, he says just one verse earlier, Psalm 37 verse 6, he promises his believing people, he will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. One day the truth will come out. And one day God's people will be vindicated, which means shown to be righteous. And one day we'll receive from his hand exaltation and glory. So verse 17 of our text, Israel receives eternal salvation from the Lord. His people will escape the shame and humiliation that awaits all who reject God for lifeless idols. And to underscore the word eternal, it comes up everlasting and eternity there in verse 17. He's moving beyond, of course, the historical problem of exile and rescue from exile there in, in, uh, in history with Cyrus. He's looking at the broadest possible scale. His rescue from the greatest problem of all, which is not so much being conquered by another people, it's our sin and the shame and guilt that our sin incurs before God. That's what eternal salvation is about. Sin exposes us to shame. Sin makes us want to avoid God because we know that he's holy and pure. When you feel the most sinful is probably the the times it's hardest for you to think that I should go to God, I should talk to God. It makes us like Adam and Eve 
who immediately made fig leaves to cover themselves as soon as they knew that they had sinned against God in the garden. But, as Paul writes in Romans 9.33 and Romans 10 verse 11, this is God's promise for us in Christ. Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Everyone who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ will not be put to shame. God sent his son Jesus Christ to rescue us from shame as well as guilt and death and all the other ruinous effects of our sin. And so as God's people, we know that the story for us ends in eternal glory and safety. He will vindicate us. He will lift us up into his presence. He will remove our sin from us as far as the east is from the west. He will clothe us not in flimsy fig leaves, but in the robes of righteousness bought at the price of his son's blood. So Christian, present appearances of glory and shame are not true. They're not final. The wicked who reject God may indeed prosper for a time in this life, but one day the great reversal is coming. When all the mountains will be brought low and all the valleys will be raised up, when all the proud of the earth will be leveled and all who waited on God and on His salvation will join the Lord Jesus in His shared glory. Brothers and sisters, imagine that on December 31st, 2019, someone had given you a preview of all that was going to happen in the year to come. You would be shocked about the COVID pandemic and its effects. You'd be saddened by the deaths of so many, especially those who had to expire in the cold, inhuman loneliness of a quarantine hospital room. You'd be depressed at the social upheavals that it exposed. And, not to be too crass, but if you are financially savvy, you would notice that a little-known tech company called Zoom was about to have a very good year. And if you had such knowledge, and if you had an easy $10,000 to spare, I mean, who doesn't? I'm joking. <laughs> you might put it all in Zoom stock. And if you had done that and ridden out the roller coaster of the year 2020, by that year's end, how much would your stock be worth? The answer is $55,000. That's 450% growth in one year. I'll bet you wish you had more than 10000 to put into Zoom stock at that point. It's incredible. It was an incredible year for Zoom. Everyone started Zooming everybody. Now, if you were doing that, and you knew where your stock was going, how would you feel if at some point in early January, your Zoom stock dipped a little bit? I hope you wouldn't get too bent out of shape. After all, in view of where the value is going, I hope you'd recognize that it doesn't really matter at all. If you had sense, you would think, this doesn't matter, it's just a blip. The great reversal is coming, and I'll wind up in good shape. Friends, this is, how much more should we be able to shake off the apparent humiliations of the righteous in this present life, or the apparent victories of the wicked, when things seem backward, when they aren't the way they ought to be? And viewed in isolation, these things can cause us so much distress. But in view of eternity, it is a mere blip, not worth mentioning. So don't fret over the prosperity of the wicked. Don't envy them. Don't fantasize about joining them. 
They are wasting their lives on the lifeless gods of pleasure or possessions or prestige or power or whatever false gods they're worshiping. But God's salvation will be a glorious rescue and a reversal for all who know him. No matter how well or how poorly someone seems to be doing in this life, this is the one question that matters. How does God save? How does God save? And the answer is that he shames those who seek false gods, but he gives glory and honor to those who know him. He shames the idolaters, but he heaps glory and honor on those who know him. And this brings us to our third question in verses 18 and 19. How is God visible? How is God visible? For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, he is God. Who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no other. I did not speak in secret in a land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. You may notice that this text is bookended by the ideas of God's hiddenness and his visibility. We heard about his hiddenness in verse 15. He's hidden to the nations who speculate and who seek false gods with the answers to life's ultimate questions. But now we return to see in verses 18 and 19 where God is found. This is the third portrait of our text. And it's intimately tied to the salvation that he just talked about in verses 16 to 17. A moment ago, we heard God promise this salvation to his people. And now, in verses 18 and 19, he explains the basis for this promise. Notice the key word, for, at the beginning of verse 18. This is important. This shows us how these two parts are related. For, meaning because. He's saying, I promise to save you. This will be an eternal salvation. You can bank on it because... And, And then he goes into talking about his work as the creator of heavens and the earth. Because I, the creator of all, am saying this to you. I'm the only God. Now, we've seen creation come up a few times already in recent weeks as we've been back in Isaiah. In this big section of the book, the Lord is circling around what I call kind of the three-stranded argument of his monotheism, creation, and sovereignty. Monotheism, creation, and sovereignty. Meaning, there is no God but the one God, the Lord, Yahweh. Okay, that's monotheism. Only one God. So, he's the creator of all things. There's only one God, and so that God is the creator of all. And as the only God, and as the creator of all, he is the sovereign ruler of all that he's made. That's that three-stranded argument that's been kind of circling around in Isaiah. And because of that, because he's the only God and the creator and the sovereign one who rules, he alone should be the object of his people's trust and worship. Not those false gods. Get away from those false gods and trust the creator and the sovereign ruler, the only God. So why is he referring back to creation? Well, together in verses 18 and 19, here's what he's doing. He's saying, do you want to know why you can rely on my eternal salvation that I just promised to you? You know you can rely on these words because of the kind of world that I've made and because of the kind of words that I've spoken. Because of the kind of world that I've made, that's what verse 18 is about. God is the creator who has created a cosmos 
that makes it possible to know him. And 19, because of the words I've spoken. Verse 19 is about God as revealer who has spoken words that make it possible to know him. So let's look first at creation. In verse 18, we hear about heaven and earth that he's made, the two realms of reality. What kind of creation, what kind of cosmos is it? He says he did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. And this intentionally recalls the creation account back in Genesis 1. Because immediately after God created the unformed materials of heaven and earth in verse 1, then it says in verse 2, the state of things was formless and void. Formless and void. It was chaotic. It was empty. And God then spends the rest of the chapter undoing that state by forming and then filling his world. That's what the creation account in Genesis 1 is. God creates heaven and earth. It's crazy. It's chaotic. It's empty. And then he spends three days forming it and three days filling it with life. He makes it habitable. He makes it orderly. And then he fills it with bountiful life. Fish teeming in the seas and creatures walking the ground and birds soaring in the air. And then the crown jewel of his creation uh, week is man. Man in his image. So what is God doing in recalling that? I didn't make it empty. I didn't make it formless. He's making a contrast with the pagan understanding of how reality is structured. And this idea of how reality is structured is called cosmology. Sort of our understanding of what reality is. The pagans of the ancient Near East, the contemporaries of Isaiah, they did not believe in one God who created all things. Paganism believes that the gods are continuous with the material world. So like biblical theism, pagans believe in a primordial chaos that's formless and void. But for them, the gods kind of emerge from that chaos. And the chaos never really ends. We're all kind of swirling around in this stew of reality. And the gods are not in control. They're just more powerful than we are. They're like super us. But they don't, they're not steering the ship. No one is in control. The world, in the pagan cosmology, the world is a ghost ship in a storm with no one at the helm. But the biblical God is entirely different. What does he do in the creation account? He creates heaven and earth out of nothing. He creates the material out of nothing. And then he organizes the chaos into a world that is friendly for life and filled with life. The world is not random and scary. It's orderly and good. The world is not a ship adrift in a storm. It is being piloted by the sovereign hand of the all-powerful creator. What a contrast. And that's what God is saying in verse 18. Compared with the pagan false gods, he's, he's pointing his people to hope because his exclusive supremacy is a great comfort for his people. There is someone in charge. And therefore, there's someone who can save. I am the Lord and there is no other. Life may feel chaotic, does it not? Life may feel like it's all unfolding according to no plan at all. Doesn't it sometimes feel that way? But God says, no, it's unfolding according to my freely ordained plan. I, the Almighty, I'm steering the ship. So that's it for creation, verse 18. What about revelation? There he goes in verse 19. I did not speak in secret in the land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. 
The word that's translated in vain there links back to verse 18. It's the same word that's translated empty in verse 18 or in Genesis 1 verse 2, formless. So God's world, we just saw, God's world is not dark and random and chaotic. It's good and orderly. And this has radical implications on where we find truth. Because in the pagan worldview, where do you find truth? Good luck. You're swirling around in the darkness. All you can do is hope to find little scraps of insight, but you can never find more than that. And they use means like necromancy and divination to try to get insights from the gods or from the dead. But they never had anything solid and reliable. And maybe that's the way you gain truth. If you don't believe in God, if you're trying to figure out what's true and it feels like you're just grasping for scraps of insight, but you know it's not really anchored to anything. And it does feel like no one really is in control and no one's really able to tell you what's true. But into God's orderly world, he has sent his right and true words. He says, I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. He's telling his people, don't grope in the darkness and chaos for truth or for me. I have told you my clear, reliable, trustworthy words by which to know me. The psalmist says, Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. God's word gives us clarity and light. It illuminates our way ultimately to knowing him. And so we come full circle to where the text began. The nations are in darkness, unable to know God. And what is the solution? God's words spoken to his nation Israel, but ultimately words for the whole world. They're God's words of salvation that promises eternal rescue and glory for all who seek him. And in the fullest scope, they're words that are centered on Israel's Messiah, the coming Redeemer. This is how Paul in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, characterizes the Old Testament. This is amazing. You say, Paul, what's the Old Testament? In verse, uh, 2 Timothy 3.15, writing to his protege Timothy, he calls them the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. They are the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. That's the Old Testament. That's what we call the Old Testament. That's what God's scriptures are really. And the New Testament is certainly has the same thrust, the same central point. They're holy writings that train us to look to Jesus Christ for salvation. This is the Christ who, though he was the eternal God himself, left heaven and assumed the form of a man for us in our salvation. This is the Christ who was born under the law and kept its way blameless, fulfilling all righteousness on behalf of sinners. This is the Christ who yielded his life as a spotless sacrifice on the cross in place of God's people to lift away our guilt and shame from our sin and to reconcile us to God forever. This is the Christ who rose from the dead and ascended to heaven and will yet return to bring all mankind into judgment. He'll bring shame, everlasting ruin upon the unrepentant idolaters and he'll share his eternal glory with all who believe in him. So Christians, fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, have clarity, have confidence, I should say, have confidence in the life-giving clarity of God's word. He has spoken to be known. 
These words provide us the only way to know him through Christ and his salvation. Salvation in Christ is the only way to find the hidden God. And this is what Jesus tells us about himself in John 14, 6. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And he says later on in John 17, 3, he's praying to his Father. And he says, this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So eternal life is knowing God. And God is hidden everywhere but in the salvation that comes by faith in Jesus. So Christians, if we are disoriented or disheartened about God's purposes in the world, God's ways of ruling by his providential hand, and if history and our lives feel like darkness and chaos are reigning, find your bearings by looking to Christ. Look to Jesus Christ. He is the visible image of the invisible God. In his holiness and his love, in his grace and his truth, in his wisdom and compassion and justice and power, see in Christ the character of your God. This is the mind and heart that rules all things. This is the God who draws near to save you. And this is why we devote ourselves to God's word, not because it's merely the right thing to do. It is. <laughs> but because it's the trustworthy window of truth and light. It's the periscope into heaven, the only way to know God. And it's the place where he's revealed his son and his salvation so that we can know him. And if you're not a Christian today, then I tell you on the authority of God's word, that you are swirling in chaos and darkness. You know that you need eternal, solid truth. You know that you need to know what's right and wrong. You know that you need to know where everything came from and where it's headed. And if you're honest, in the depths of your heart, you know that you need relief from the crippling load of guilt and shame that your sin has brought upon you. You know that sin exists and that you've done it. Even me saying that, you know that that's true. The good news is that God has given all of these things for all the nations. In Israel's scriptures, which is the Bible, and in Israel's promised Messiah, whom these scriptures reveal, who's Jesus Christ. And there is nowhere else that you'll receive this kind of light and clarity from heaven. Because Jesus alone is the light of the world. Everything else is darkness. And if you're tired of that darkness and you're tired of that uncertainty and that chaos, he's inviting you, like we heard in John 8, I'm the light of the world. Whoever comes to me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. This is what God says prophetically to his son. A few chapters on in Isaiah 49, verse 6. This is God talking to the servant who is Christ. He says, It is too light a thing, too small a thing, that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. He's a savior for Israel and for all the nations. May the light of his salvation reach even to your life today. Come to Jesus Christ, the light of the world. 
If you don't know Jesus, I would love to interact with you later about who he is and what it means to turn to him in faith. And I know there's many other members here in this church who would be equally glad to do so. But don't go on groping in the darkness when you know that you were made for more. So how is God visible? He's visible through his saving words that point us to Jesus Christ, the only Savior. So we've now looked at these three portraits that, again, they orbit around this one big point, that sinners see the hidden God only in the saving word of Christ. Our culture celebrates pluralism. Everyone has their own answers to these big questions, and it doesn't really matter which one you subscribe to as long as it works for you and it doesn't hurt anyone else. But we've heard God warn us in these ancient and profound words that we will never find him that way. Now, he violates our autonomy with this urgent message. Only in my revelation do you find Christ. And only in Christ do you find salvation. And only in salvation, he says, do you find me. Let's go to him in prayer. Our God, we praise you for how you have revealed yourself to blinded sinners. You have been so merciful, not only to declare your glory in the heavens, but then to give special revelation, to give the words uh, through the law and through the prophets, and ultimately and most fully in Jesus Christ, so that we could know you by faith and we could be restored back to you and receive your eternal salvation. We pray that every believer in Christ here in this room would be restored and encouraged in our confidence in your word. And just our gratitude for the clarity and the life-giving, really lifeline you've given from heaven in knowing the word of Christ. May we devote our lives to it corporately and individually. And for anyone here who does not know Christ, we pray that this invitation to come and find light and truth, to come and to know you through your son Jesus, would be an attractive offer, an attractive command, and that you would draw their hearts even now to know you through Christ. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.